This is On Location. I'm Tim Leitner. Today's episode is coming to you on location from Maryland and from Alaska. But first, On Location is produced by the NCA Communications Committee with special production assistance from Joe Manlin and me. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcast, Breaker, iHeartRadio, and Radio Public, among others. So subscribe today on your favorite podcast service and tell all your friends. On today's program, I have the privilege of welcoming someone directly involved in the shaping of the child support program as it exists today, and who can speak to the history and progression of the program. That person is none other than Vernon Drew. Listen as we have a conversation about how the child support program came about, including some milestones, and how they impacted and influenced the child support program. Vernon addresses topics including mandatory building blocks, automation, program management, tangible benefits to a strong child support community, and the value of partnerships. Here Vernon also share about how he got a start in child support and his own journey in the program. It's going to be a great show, so stick around and we'll be right back. Welcome back to a brand new episode of NCA on Location, coming to you from Maryland and Alaska. I'm Tim Leitner, and I'm with CGI in Anchorage, Alaska. And on today's program, you'll hear from someone directly involved in the shaping of the child support program as it exists today, and who can speak to the history and progression of the program. Today, I'm honored and excited to be meeting up and hanging out with not only someone who is passionate and well-respected in the child support community, but also a colleague and friend, Vernon Drew. Vernon, welcome to On Location. Thank you. And we have been looking forward to you being here. Would you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit more about who you are, a little bit about where you've come from, just kind of introduce yourselves for those that might not know you. Well, first of all, Tim, thanks for inviting me to join you this afternoon. It's a real honor to be included in anything NCA has to do, and especially if it has something to do with you. So yeah, I'm Vernon Drew. I hail from Walterboro, South Carolina. Let's just put that to rest. It's the same place where the Alex Berno trials happened on the very street I grew up on. And so uh, I used to think I grew up in a sleepy little southern town, and now all my friends tell me I'm from a bigoted place where rich people hunt hogs. So I grew up in South Carolina, went to college in South Carolina, and started my career as a, in those days called AFDC. It was the program that, the economic program for children and families. And I worked in Walterboro for a couple of years doing that work. And so that's how my career started. 
Very cool. And I've also heard that since about, what, 2020, you've had a little bit of a change of pace? <laughs> yes. In 2020, after 29 years in child support, well, no, more than 29 years, and since 1975 in child support, and 29 years of running the Center for Supportive Families, I finally was convinced it was time to retire. So I did. Not the best timing in the, the beginning of the pandemic. Thought I would be out traveling around, visiting with my friends. Instead, I was sitting on my front steps, hoping that people would come by and wave at me and stay six <laughs> feet away. So it was an interesting time, but it was time for me to move on and let other people like you take the leadership roles in child support. Great. Thank you. Thank you. So let me ask a question here as well. With your journey, you talked about uh, starting with AFDC back in those days when I was called AFDC. Can you tell us how you ended up in the child support program? What, what drew your attention? What kind of got you hooked? I would like to say that I was recruited to be the director of the child support program in South Carolina in a national search, but that would be far from the truth. It's kind of an entertaining story, I suppose. I did start as a AFDC caseworker in a local, what was then called public welfare department. And then I moved on and did policy work in the state office around work programs. But one day I was in a meeting with the 46 county directors of social services in South Carolina, and I get a note passed to me that the commissioner would like to see me. And uh, I was pretty young, and I think maybe I'd spoken to Dr. Ellis a couple times and never been in his office, and I thought, what in the name of world does Dr. Ellis want? So I called my boss, and Roy said, he does want to see you. Every step you take on the way back from that meeting, say no. And I said, what is going on? Anyway, I went into the commissioner's office, and he said, I want to cut right to the chase. We want you to be the child support director. I said, I have no idea what child support is. You've had a task force for a year. And he said, I know, but none of that's working out. We just want you to take it over and do it. And um, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. It speaks very lowly of the management of the department <laughs> and the talent that was in South Carolina at that point in time, I suppose, though there were a lot of great people there. I said, I've never supervised anybody. I've never looked at an agency budget. I am not the right person for this job. Why do you want me? To I don't think I'm going to do this. And he said, well, if you say no, you will have no career in the department. And I said, well, I might want to think about it then. <laughs> so that's how I started by saying no. And three days later, I went back in his office with the deputy commissioner. And she said, if you say yes, you can have, and if you don't like it in six months, you can have any job you want. In six months, the commissioner was not allowed to speak to the legislature. The governor wouldn't speak to him. My deputy commissioner was in his camp, and I was lucky to have a job. <laughs> so that's how I started. Let me just say it was the best decision he ever made because it gave me a wonderful career. I'm not sure he made the right decision for the program, but for me, I've had a wonderful career. 
you know, Vernon, we're we're very very happy that you said yes back back at that time, and look not just where you're at, but all the influence and all the opportunity, and just all the networking you've done over the years. So I I need to ask too: Are there any accomplishments that you're particularly proud of that you've been involved with? Yes, as like I said, I've been really fortunate that I had a wonderful career and made many, many friends in the child support community. Actually, I would say that because of connections at NC and ERICSA and through my work in state government and federal government, over 90% of lessees and my friends have some connection to child support. (laughs) And they're great people. I, I think of several things I'm particularly proud that I have something to do with. First of all, I have to say, starting a, a program, a state program where we didn't have laws, we didn't have procedures, we had no budget, we had nothing. I teamed up with some great people like Larry McCallan, who some people may certainly know, who was the director after I was, my good friend Leif Moss. We really started a program and it wasn't the best program, but it worked. And I had a great career at OCSE. I think another thing in the 90s, Meg Haynes, who's a brilliant legal scholar and great friend, um, asked me if I would consider coming to work for her. She was the chair of the U.S. Commission on Interstate Child Support, and she asked me to be the executive director. So I worked with Meg, 14 other wonderful commissioners from all across the country, and Jeff Ball, who everybody in the child support community knows. And that was an exciting two years of working with the Congress and states and the federal government to craft recommendations. We published our report in the early 90s. Almost everything in that report, I'm proud to say, based upon not my work, but the work of the commissioners and Jeff and Meg, really became federal law. That's an accomplishment I'm very happy about. Obviously, the thing I'm most proud of is in 1991, I was fortunate to team up with two other people, and Terry Nichols won, and form a company called the Center for Supportive Families. And that gave me an opportunity to work with brilliant, wonderfully nice, influential people for the rest of my career. That's that's always a, a great place to end up when you're with passionate people that make a difference and that you have a like mindset. Yeah, you can really make a difference to the child support program. So that's awesome. You know, Vernon, you had recently spoken at NCO Web Talk in December of last year about a journey through the history of the child support program. And I know today you're going to further that conversation and talk to us about how the program came about, including the milestones and how they impacted and influenced the program. So let's start with just a short little recap. Can you remind us when the 40 Child Support Program was created and why was it created? Well, the the program actually began in July of 1975, but it was built upon things that had happened across the country since the 1950s. In 1972, the Congress and many states became increasingly concerned about the number of families that were having to rely upon the AFDC program for economic security. And 
they alarmed about the numbers of children and families, but also the amount of money that was being spent on that program. And so led by Russell Long, who was the senator from Louisiana, Robbie Indris, I'll be happy I said that, the Senate Finance Committee really started investigating ways that they could, and, and this is a very negative thing, but it was very negatively said back then, make men pay for their children and collect child support as a debt recovery for the AFGC program. And I'll come back to that later. It's, it's something I think we have to keep in mind and something that we've really struggled as a program all, all these years to turn around our debt collection mentality to a family service mentality, which you know is great and is happening now. So the program started in 1975, but like I said, it was built upon some models that already existed. Specifically, a lot of people that came to Washington to start the child support program were from California district attorney's offices. They were very influenced by the Michigan friend of the court and prosecutor's office in Michigan, the Pennsylvania domestic relations court, just to name three specific states. And there were bits and pieces of other programs. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Let me just ask, was there any mandatory enforcement building blocks to a customer-friendly child support program? I mean, this was new out of the gate, and you talked about, you know, the, the old viewpoint of perspective to make men pay doesn't sound very customer-friendly. <laughs> child support in the early days, Tim, was not very customer-friendly. It was definitely a debt collection program, and the majority of Almost all of the collections, except in very metropolitan states, went back to state and federal government to reimburse them for the AFDC expenditures that were being made. So very little customer friendly in those days. It was also very judicial oriented. So everything in most states, Utah being a glaring example, for instance, where they had an administrative process, and Washington state. But almost all other states, everything went to court. And you know, the history of courts in this country is problem-solving, but most citizens of the United States think of courts as a place where people who do wrong get punished, right? And so that was kind of the overtone or undertone, I suppose you would call it, of the child support program. So what I would say about mandatory enforcement techniques is as the program matured and enforcement techniques became more sophisticated, like income withholding, I'll give as a good example. And when it became mandatory, there was a kind of a concern that we were going to tell employers that Vernon Drew has a child support obligation and that employer is going to ask Vernon Drew to leave because he doesn't want a person who left his children working for him or her. But when it became mandatory, and especially when it came immediate, it really leveled the playing field. And it was a universal way to enforce. Same things with tax offsets and other enforcement techniques. They became, everybody was treated the same way. And it was non-adversarial because you got an obligation. 
enforcement techniques took place automatically and in the terms of income withholding and tax offset and those kinds of remedies, they did without any adversarial action on behalf of the state or the other parent. It also, I think, mandatory enforcement techniques gave the child support community, once they were in place, the time to really think about customers and to start developing programs for outreach to encourage non-AFDC or non-public assistance families to take advantage of the child support program which had great impact on the program because now, I mean, you know, in my early days, all the collections were public assistance collections. Now, a very large majority of collections are private, non-public assistance cases. And so that changed the whole nature of the program because now we have customers that wanted our services and also expected services. And so we had to really get creative in how to be able to serve these people expeditiously, efficiently, and with positive results. So I think the mandated word is kind of a negative word, but I think having those tools available all across the country really helped us become more customer focused. Yeah, absolutely. It, it sounds like that level setting of having things done the same way with wage withholding and those other those other building blocks kind of took down that social stigma to make people you know less afraid or less worried about uh, how their employer might react and, and those kind of things. So that that makes a lot of sense. Let me let me ask too, how did child support lead the way for automation in states and what were or are the big benefits to that? I would say in 1998, with with some exception, but the majority of state and local governments had very unsophisticated systems. Almost all the automated systems that were available were collection oriented. They were ways to collect and disperse child support payments. In 1988, when the federal government provided 90% funding for child support systems. It was a big incentive to states to really develop comprehensive statewide automated systems. It didn't go without some bloodshed, and I have a few of those scars on me about putting uh, child support systems into place in states. My home state, let me say, was the last state in the union after 30 years, they finally got a statewide child support system. If this wasn't to be broadcast, I could tell you some bloody stories about that. Um, but I think that, again, the automated systems allowed for several big things. One, they could become more than just a data storage unit. Secondly, and very importantly, they provided communication between levels of government and among states. Thirdly, I think the federal government at the same time started putting into place automated systems to interface with state systems, to do tax collection, to do locate, 
the state registries, all those things came together to provide states with real tools to be able to do the work. And, and again, you know, I don't want to keep harping on this theme, but automated systems give people who do the child support work at the desk really an opportunity to do other things other than push paper around because the system does a lot of those routine tasks. Right. You know, you know, thinking back then about um, those, what we call now the, uh, you know, the legacy systems with the green screens, those were, those were pretty cool back then because it was new and it was effective at the time. And now in the uh, child support community, we're talking about system modernization and kind of resetting all that and, and, and moving on to do bigger and better things. So in some sense, we're kind of coming full circle to what the need is, um, not just with technology, but what is what needs to be automated so we can actually do the work and be effective with it. So those are great examples. Yeah. And I, I also think your green screen analogy is so cool because... I also think we're at a point, and some people are doing it, though I think we need to figure out ways to protect privacy and do more of it, where we're able to share information about families across programs so that, that we really help families by pulling together all the programs that could help them and give them the availability to access those programs. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, kind of tearing down those silos and and sharing information and and looking how we can be helpful to the family should be at the forefront. And and sometimes I think those silos get reinforced and and uh, it's not real helpful. So that's that's a, a, a really good point. So Vernon, you talked a little bit about in your introduction about your own introduction to program management. So let me ask this, how has program management changed or improved over the years? You're so kind. I think I talked about my access to no management in child support. I think that program management has become much more sophisticated. First of all, because of the tools we've talked about, but also I think that the people in management slots across the country, and I won't name names, but a lot of them are my friends, I think, they've become more sophisticated and they take advantage of the knowledge of each other to become even more sophisticated. And and also I think that program management has changed radically in that their connections among other programs that serve families in other states. And there's always been, I think, though there have been some bumps in the road in this journey, I think there's been a healthy respect and working relationship between states and the federal government. I would give a shout out, though, to child support organizations like INSEA, ERICSA, WICSAC, and the really fabulous state child support associations who really have led the path with some funding from OCSE to really keep pushing the envelope about management techniques and program expansion. And I think that those programs, the technical assistance that those programs provide, really have moved program management in a very positive way. 
Yeah, that's a that's a great segue too. You mentioned Wixic and Arixa and Encia, and I had to throw in there too NTCSA with the the Tribal Association. Can you tell us a little bit about what are the tangible benefits to a strong child support community? I'm glad you mentioned the Tribal Association, and I apologize for not doing that. Let me give a plug for that. I think tribal child support programs have taught us more about family culture than any other part of the national child support program. So let me just say that, and hopefully my friends in the tribal community will accept my apology. I think partnerships really have moved the program forward. The National Child Support Directors Association is a strong partnership of people who really um, and I've never, I, I mean, I was a, a member of that organization a thousand million years ago, but what I know about the people in that organization is they really are real supports to each other, both in terms of immediate problem solving, but also thinking as a group how the program can move forward. I'll tell you a, a great story about that. I was doing some training for OCSE with Cynthia Bryant, another real leader in the child support program. And at the end of the training session, and we get a lot of problem-solving exercises in this training. At the end of it, Aaron Frisch from Michigan stood up and said, people, we've had a great time these three days. We've learned a lot. We've enjoyed each other. I think we should continue this conversation. And I'm willing to host conference calls every month and everybody in the room signed on immediately. And they became what's called in that day the newbies. It's just one example of how that group pulls together. Another good example of partnerships in the Congress passed a law that said you couldn't match federal incentives. You couldn't use that as match. Even though the federal incentives were state dollars, they, they went to the state, but you couldn't use it to match. And it was a huge blow to child support programs financially. And Vicki Turetsky put together, I call it a team, for lack of better words, but it really was a team of labor unions, child advocates, states, professional organizations outside of child support, just a large group of people who worked together and got Congress to at least stop that for several years while states were able to come up with alternate financial plans. And that's just an example of how a partnership really worked to solve a problem. So Vernon, you've shared quite a bit with us today. Do you have any last thoughts or points that you want to emphasize or leave with us today? Yes, thanks, Tim, for allowing me to do that. I think two things that I'd like to close with. One is there's a lot of negativity in this world and a lot of it <laughs> well-placed negativity because we have so much decisiveness and so much hate going on right now. You know, Tennessee's latest murders uh, of children is just a glaring example. I really think that it's really important that we face 
the reality of that we all need to improve, both individually and as a program. We need to embrace that we have issues and work together to solve those issues. But I also think it's really important that we celebrate what we have done, what we do for families, and also who we are. And I think that gets left out of the conversation. You might call me a party guy, but I like to raise a glass and say, my friends have done good work. The other thing I think is for people who are listening to this old guy ramble on and on, I would encourage people as they look at their career to take a gamble every now and then and do something outside of your comfort zone. And I say that realizing, especially in government, it's hard to do that sometimes because if you make a mistake, somebody's going to, you know, in bad government or bad managed companies, people give that black mark too much credence. But I do think just do something outside of your comfort zone. Be, get involved in INSEA or ERICSA or WICSAC or your state child support association. I know in my personal case, that exposure and being able to do things outside of South Carolina gave me a real opportunity to meet other people, learn from other people, and get some visibility. So get outside your comfort zone, celebrate what you have, but embrace that we have issues that need to be solved. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, Vernon, I'm going to, I'm going to do a little spoiler alert here. And you just talked about being involved in other opportunities with different associations and meeting people. So I can't help share a little bit that you will be at Aritza in May. So for those attending Aritza in Savannah, Georgia, can you tell us what you're going to be doing there? Yeah, Arixa was the first child support organization I became involved with, and Arixa is celebrating its 60th anniversary this year in Savannah, Georgia, a beautiful city. One of the things that they have done is ask past presidents of the organization to come back and be a part of the program. So I'm going to be on a panel with some very smart, wonderful people, Meg Haynes, Susan Pakin, uh, Margot Bean. I think Jeff was supposed to be a part, but he's not able to come. And we're going to talk about the issues that were in place in child support during our time as president. I know Susan and I are struggling to remember back that far. So, But fortunately, Patterson Calhoun has found the minutes of all of our meetings, so we are able to reconstruct. So that's really exciting. And then uh, Rob Belkoff every year does a Inzerixa with a real fun educational game. And sometimes it's Jeopardy. And this year it's going to be Erixa Squares based upon family squares. And a, a lot of the past presidents are going to be there trying to stump the audience on facts about child support. But I'm also going to be there to see my friends and hopefully meet new friends. Yeah, it sounds like game on, but it sounds like it's going to be a good opportunity and a good a good lot of fun. Well, we want to thank our guest, Vernon Drew, for joining us today and sharing his experiences and more about the journey through the history of the child support program. Vernon, thank you for all that you have done to help shape and further this program that benefits so many families. 
and for continuing to be part of this vibrant community of professionals that are passionate about the child support program. Thank you as always to our listeners for listening in today. On behalf of Encia, this has been On Vocation. On Location is available on iTunes, Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you get your podcasts. We have a lot of great episodes on the way, so be sure to subscribe and listen to all of our previous episodes as well. We also appreciate your ratings, your feedback, your comments, and your suggestions. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, please reach out to us on the contact link on our website. On Location is a production of the NCA Communications Committee with special production assistance from Joe Mamlin and me. Thanks again for joining me. I'm Tim Leitner, and this has been On Location.